0: We don't know a lot about the Hebrews that this particular scriptural text is being written to. That group of people is one that appears in this text and not necessarily a lot of other places. And so we've had to guess a lot at what kind of life they were living that led to these words, at what kind of experience they were having that led to these words. But there are some things we're pretty sure of. And those are that they had a lot of different reasons why they might have wanted to stop meeting together. This is one thing about reading anything, but especially the Bible, right? If it ever says, uh, don't stop meeting together, that's not generally because the community was doing really great at meeting together, right? Uh, Anytime people are being told to not do something, it's probably because they're doing it already, or else no one would bring it up. They had a lot of reasons to be tempted to stop meeting together, and here were just a few. One is that they were probably being persecuted in their community for their faith beliefs. Um, We don't know exactly when or at what time, Um, But the text is written really from a perspective of pressure and burden. It's being written to people who are being pressured by probably their families, the people who live down the street, the people who are in their community to stop believing what they believe and to stop doing um, the actions that their belief calls them to. And that kind of persecution makes it very tempting to not be publicly who you are anymore. Right? For your safety. And so they were tempted to not meet together for that reason, because meeting together was a way of saying to the world, here's this group that I'm a part of, that's a group that you don't like. I definitely understand that reason for not meeting together. Uh, Another temptation they had for not meeting together was this new kind of belief that they were living into. Many of the people who the book of Hebrews is written to had been people who sacrificed regularly Um, they would bring animal sacrifices or be a part of sacrifices as a part of their worship life it was a beautiful part of their worship life that we continue to repeat a little bit today in our communion practice Um, but they were grappling with This whole Jesus living, dying, and coming back to life thing, (laughs) what does that mean for us? What what does that mean about what we do now? What does that mean about how we act now? What does that mean about who we are now? And it raised a lot of questions. Um, Who was Jesus and what was his deal? What does his deal mean for us? And one of the ways that they sort of processed what had happened was that they thought of him as the perfect sacrifice, the one who could be the priest who killed the animal and also the animal itself. They started to tell this story of the most perfect sacrifice, and when they started to tell that story, when they started to understand Jesus in that way, they felt like, okay, well, then maybe the kinds of sacrifices we used to do shouldn't be a part of our worship life anymore, shouldn't be a part of our ritual life anymore. And... So then the question was, why meet together, (laughs) right? If we're not doing the thing that we used to do, what should we do now? Um, And then the other reason to not meet together was because Jesus had promised the kingdom and they thought it was coming within the hour. They thought the world was about to end. That's why this thing about the day approaching, they don't mean like, ah, one day the world will end. They thought like, oh, The world will end before I die. It is coming. The judgment day is happening. Jesus has come. We've set the table. Like, here it is. They believed that the world was about to end. And so kind of why keep up with piety, right? Uh, All these decisions are about to be made. The whole story is about to be over. Why continue with these monotonous habits? Why continue with these everyday kind of habits? Why live as we had lived before and meet with one another? Um if it's all about to turn into something totally new and different. They had a lot of reasons to be afraid of or to not want to or to be uninspired about meeting together, coming together as a group and as a community. But still the writer says, do not give up on being together. Do not give up on meeting with one another. Do not give up on, and I love this, provoking one another to love and good deeds. When's the last time you thought about provoking someone to love? Provoking someone to love harder, provoking someone to love better, provoking someone to love more. The writer of Hebrews seems to believe that as many reasons as there are for not getting together, for just doing our own thing, for living our own lives, for waiting for the decisions to be made for us, there are much, much better reasons for continuing to challenge ourselves with community and continuing to say that there's a reason to put ourselves in relationship with one another and meet and meet and meet, no matter how hard or strange or awkward it gets, and continue to build community. Now, I don't meet with a lot of people in pastoral care who are particularly concerned that the world is gonna end tonight. Some, but not a lot. I don't meet with a lot of people who are concerned that their uh, ritual, sacrificial life needs transformation. But I do meet with a lot of people who are asking themselves, should we continue to meet together? And do we have to continue to meet together? I really wanted you to hear Elijah's testimony today, um, because I think it has a lot to do with these questions that we're asking ourselves. In a turning point for the world, and particularly a turning point for the church and for the Jesus movement, on what is it gonna look like to be a Christian? What is it gonna look like to be someone who wants to be faithful, who loves God, or to be someone who wants growth, who wants to change, who wants more peace and centering? What is that gonna look like in a world that is so different from the one that came just 10, 20, 50 years before? And I hear from a lot of people who say, maybe what it looks like is me listening to really great podcasts about Jesus and praying at home and not putting myself into community. Not putting myself into community. Um, And I think the reasons that they say that are because the kinds of communities that the Christian church has formed in the United States recently have often been traumatic forms of community. Coming together to meet, coming together in a group has not always been something that provoked us to love or that provoked us to good deeds. It was something that provoked us to pain (laughs) or to suffering or that felt like the point of it was not to make us better, but just to make us ashamed. (laughs) Or the point of it was not to make us um, rely on one another, but to just make us rely on the rules that told us we had to show up at a certain place at a certain time. A lot of our experience of meeting with one another has felt separate from our experience of who God is and what God wants for us. And so people have questions about whether we should continue meeting together. And if we do continue meeting together, what does it look like? And what does a healthy, good way of doing it look like? What does it mean to be in relationship with a body, a group of people, not just one or two, that challenges us and provokes us and holds us up and loves us? in a way that is healthy and centered in the Jesus who we think Jesus is, who is somebody who loves us and is a source of creativity and freedom and liberation and justice and not a source of um, pain and shame. As a pastor, I have a really interesting experience which is that um, I'm all over Chicago all the time and which means that I run into people all the time from church. And frequently, if someone wasn't there recently on a Sunday, the first thing they say to me before we say hello, right, is they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I wasn't there. I was out of town. I'm so sorry I wasn't there. Somebody got sick, right? Um, and, and it's really interesting to me, because I think going to church is worth it, right? If you ask me, should I go to church, should I be in a corporate body, I will say yes. It, it changes you. It does something different than the things you do alone. And we're going to talk about the difference that it makes. But I don't think the reason to engage in corporate community is because you will feel bad if you don't or because you will feel guilty if you don't. And the fact that we've said, yeah, people are enthusiastic about that. Um, And the fact that we've set it up that way, I think actually makes people less likely to engage in healthy forms of corporate life and not more likely. Because when they do, they think it's because they have to and not because they want to or need to or are making the choice to. So I don't want this to be a place where we are shamed for not engaging in corporate life, ever. But I do want it to be a place where we make the case for the value of community, for the value of coming together with people that you do know and people that you don't know, and all that that will do for your spiritual life, for your emotional life, for your faith life, for who you are and how you move through the world. Because I think we are in a crisis as a society, and I think it's a crisis of isolation. I think it's a crisis of aloneness. I think it's a crisis of separateness. And that kind of disconnectedness is causing so much pain and suffering. And I think that the church can be a part of meeting people in that need and changing how we think about community. So I want to make that case to you. I want to make that case to you for why community matters and the way that we can engage in community that is out of confidence. That's the other thing Hebrews talks about, right, is our confidence Our confidence in our belovedness of Jesus. That's why we continue meeting together. Not out of scaredness, out of boldness, out of confidence. How can we be a community that values our communal experiences from a place of confidence and not from a place of fear and shame? And this is how we connect to what our uh, kind of theme is all throughout July, just learning about the Methodist tradition, which some of you grew up in, most of you didn't. I didn't. <laughs> um, so, but it is what this church was planted out of and has been really formed by, this Methodist tradition, this Wesleyan tradition of spiritual experience. And a core part of that tradition is small group life and corporate worship. Small group life, which in the early days, the 18th and 19th century in the United States, was called class meetings or band meetings, but now we would call small groups. So basically, any time there was a Wesleyan or a Methodist society throughout England, throughout the United States, um, you would have your big group that met, which was called the society. At that time, Methodists weren't going to be a church. They were just a reform movement of the Church of England, so they would meet as a society to have bold, fun worship. They were the people who were like worshiping in the fields and worshiping in the bars and they were like being really cool and out there. Um, And so they would have these society meetings that were for the big group to feel the presence of God that you only feel when you like sing with 30 other people. You know what I mean? That just like feeling in your heart and that feeling in your brain of singing with other people and praying with other people. Some people who you know and some people who you don't know and being changed by it. And then the hope was that if you were in the society that was large, everyone would also get funneled into what were called class or band meetings of seven to 12 people. And each of those groups of seven to 12 people would have a leader and they would meet once a week and they would ask questions of one another to meet one another in the depth and the grittiness and the weirdness of what was really happening in their life. The main question to be asked in those times was how is it with your soul? Basically, like, what's up with you? (laughs) How are you and God? And each person would answer that question, and the idea was that they could answer it honestly and be loved and cared for by that small community. I want to read to you some of the other questions that would be asked in these meetings. Wesley, our little friend over there who founded Methodism, had a a suggestion of 20 questions, but over the hundreds of years that there were these small groups, others got added. I'm not going to read every single one, but... um, One question would be, have you the forgiveness of your sins? So this is the first place they would say, do you believe that you are more than the worst things that you have done? Are you still confident, right? Do you have a sense of worth and value in the eyes of God? Is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Do you shed love where you go? Do you feel love being shed where you go? And then I like this one because it... um, a big point of the meetings, right, was that we be honest about where we're screwing up, <laughs> that we be honest about what we're finding hard, the ways in which we aren't particularly living up to our values, or treating the people around us the way that we want to treat them, or being the people that we want to be, but uh, sort of recognize that like consent had to be a part of that. We can't just go around telling each other that we're terrible. And so the question was phrased this way, do you desire to be told of all your faults? <laughs> And so then I guess you could say no, I don't. <laughs> don't tell me any of them. <laughs> and then the very next question was, do you desire to be told of all your faults plainly? <laughs> so ask it twice. <laughs> just to see whether people are down, just to see. But I like that, right? Because it both says it's important that we think about the fact that we screw up with one another, <laughs> that we hurt with one another, that we hurt one another, that none of us are perfect. And there's no way of growing forward from that that is other directed. <laughs> it has to be an inward process. If we're gonna grow from our faults, if we're gonna acknowledge that, they, that we have problems, that we wanna be different, the only way for that to be done well is for it to come from a place of one, being convinced that we are lovable and loved and worth it first, before all of that stuff, And that the person who gets to work on our faults and who gets to point them out is most primarily us. (laughs) With the help of people that we have explicitly invited to help us do that. And so these small band meetings, um, in the beginning, we, we now wanted to have more inclusivity, but you actually had to, you would get a ticket at your small band meeting that you then could use to get into the big society meeting because that's how important they thought it was to be checking in each week. And what they would measure was not that you had been awesome, right? What they would measure was not, oh, I answered all the good things to all the questions. This week I helped the poor and prayed and, like, was feeling myself, right? Like, the, the, the question was, did you show up to community? Did you have the conversation? Did you talk about where God is and who you are, and did you allow people to show up for you? Because this was the other thing that these small groups would do, was they would provide food to one another when people didn't have any. They would provide housing to one another when people didn't have any. They would be the one you would call when somebody died or when you felt bad or when everything in your life seemed to be going wrong. And these small groups were the core of our faith life for so, so long. It's actually out of the model of these small groups um, that we believe uh, Bill started Alcoholics Anonymous so many years ago. It was from the model of having experienced small groups like this, right? What would a small group look like that focuses on a particular kind of pain and suffering that so many of us go through called addiction? And that model still works pretty well for a lot of people today. Not everybody, but coming together in a place where you start with the idea that you are beloved and worth it, and then start to ask yourself a bunch of questions, which is, and given that, am I being who I want to be? (laughs) How is my life going? Where is it at? And how can you help me, and how can I help you, and who can we be to each other? It's a beautiful model for living life together, for provoking one another to love by being loved, for provoking one another to good deeds, not because you think you have to do good deeds to earn anything, but because when you're reminded by 6 to 11 other people that they are there for you and that they will love you no matter what, you feel empowered and confident to go out and be a different person and try and offer something to the world. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we don't do enough of it. We have a lot of small groups here at Urban Village that I think actually work exactly in this way, that do exactly what we hope for from this kind of small group, but not everybody is a part of one. If you've never tried one before, I would really encourage you to do so. We're gonna be announcing all of our small groups next month. Juan Pablo, right here, raise your hand, is gonna be organizing all those so you can talk to him. Um, And I think that this is exactly what they should be, a place where we continue to meet one another, and where we ask one another, how is it with your soul? And how can I be there for you? How can I help? But for a lot of us, that doesn't work for one reason or another, scheduling or people. And I think we need to start asking ourselves, what is it gonna look like to make sure that everybody has some form of community in their life? Because that's how essential it is to us functioning. (laughs) That's how essential it is to us going forward. I'm reading a really interesting book right now called Lost Connection. Um, Sorry, I just totally blanked on the author's name. We'll put it in the podcast later. Um, Who also wrote a book called Chasing the Scream where he has experienced depression and anxiety and worked with a lot of people who are experiencing addiction and really wanted to go into um, researching it as thoroughly as he could, biochemically, right? Socially, what's the best research on why in the richest society that has ever existed, rates of depression and anxiety are also higher than they have ever been? And he comes to the conclusion, there's some biochemical stuff going on, right? Many of us need to, want to, will be empowered and liberated by seeking treatment. And two of the biggest factors are our loss of connection and our loss of purpose. That our society is no longer set up to provide us those things on a daily level and it has become too hard for us to create them ourselves. And they are the most important thing we can ever have. Connection is what feeds our hearts. Connection is what nourishes our souls. And too many of us are feeling burdened by the lack of it. Next month, we're gonna be doing a sermon series all through August on friendship. Friendship, how do you make friends as a grown-up? And I would like everyone to raise their hand if they have had trouble making new friends as an adult. (laughs) Right? Um, It is so hard. And it didn't used to be, it didn't used to be. There used to be all of these forms of institutional life where you would be put into automatic connection with others. And then it turned out that a lot of those institutions were demanding that we be people who we weren't, and they were oppressing us, and they were hurting us, and they were making the lane too small. But then we tore down the institutions or exempted ourselves from them, and now we have no relationships. (laughs) And we have no connections, and we have no way to be funneled with people, and it's really hard to just approach people at the grocery store and not seem like a creep and be like, I want a friend. <laughs> Will you read a book with me? Will you go to the club with me? Will you, right? Like, it's hard, it's hard. Our society is not set up to create enduring relationship because we're nervous around each other and because friendship takes time. <laughs> the number one contributor, here's, the, I'm, my closest friends are all people I went to college with. We are dramatically different. They call me high priestess because so many of them have so little context for religious life. That is the only thing they can think to call me, right? Um, We live different lives. We live totally different lives, but because we were in college together, we lived in the same building together and spent approximately eight to 10 hours a day together for four years, and you can't not be friends when you spend that much time with one another. And in the late capitalist dystopian hellscape that we currently inhabit, (laughs) right? (laughs) Let's be real. Um, Work, the the obligations of our current kinds of work life do not afford us the time necessary to nurture the relationships that are essential to our well-being. And so I'm going to say that we need to resist what the order of the day is telling us about how we need to spend our time. We need to resist what the order of the day is telling us about how community works. We need to resist what the order of the day is telling us about what is important to devote attention to and what is not important to devote attention to and say, I am gonna prioritize connection and continuing to meet with one another in my life. I am gonna make friendship and community and some small group of people, whether I meet them to run every Thursday morning or to drink wine and vent every Friday night Or to get soda water and talk about complimenting each other, right, over lunch on a Google Hangout because we all are at work. Like, whatever the thing is, you need to be meeting with people regularly. And the same people over a long enough course of time that you can trust them, that they can trust you, and out of a place of love, you can start to be really real with each other about what is going on. Because too many of us don't have that in our life. Or we have it and then we don't maintain it. And it's hurting us. It's hurting us all. And it has always, from the beginning days when Jesus picked 12 people and said, let's hang out for three years, been the center of spiritual life and been the center of healthy spiritual life. So we're going to be offering you lots of opportunities to do that in the coming months. And we're going to be challenging ourselves in every way. This is something that I am not great at, something that none of us are great at. It's something that the world is set up to make harder for us but i truly believe that living counterculturally into relationship is going to change us. So that's the task. How will we continue to meet with one another? On Sunday mornings, on other days, so that we are called into a body of people who are not the same as us, but in whom and with whom we have found the love that changes lives, the care that changes worlds, and the trust that we can be totally honest and still beloved and find that not just in the God who made us, but in real flesh and blood people who God also made, in whom love can most fully make itself known. So that's the task. Let's go forward together helping one another with it, provoking one another to love and good deed, and provoking one another to meet with one another. Because it is so important today more than ever. Amen? Amen.